That good? All right. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to thank everyone for being here this morning and for being faithful. And I thank God for this opportunity and for allowing us once again to meet and assemble ourselves together as one body of believers, one in Christ, and for giving us the hope that we have in his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. For we know today is closer than it was yesterday. Amen. Our message this morning is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I want to start off with just a little short description on what chapter 1 of 1 Peter is about. First of all, we know the writer of this letter is Peter himself because he identifies himself right from the start in verse 1. He was one of the original disciples who was called to follow Christ during his early ministry. And later on, he was called to be one of the 12 apostles. It's been said that Peter was one of the head of the twelve because every time the apostles were mentioned, his name was placed first in the list. And in our text, he addresses his readers as aliens, which tells us that he's not just talking to Jews or to Gentiles who were living in such a way that they would have stood out as aliens among, among others in the culture they were living in. And so he writes this letter to comfort them in the midst of their suffering by bringing to light the, re the reality of their salvation. And he speaks of how they should praise God for their salvation and how there's benefits of being chosen by God. And he teaches them how to live and respond to persecution. And the endurance that Peter calls these believers to would be similar to that of Job's, being a man of, who suffered despite his righteousness. And folks, in our world today, we haven't suffered the type of persecution that these Christians were suffering in that day. One day, we may have to, but for the most part, the only type of persecution that we would maybe have to go through today as Christians would be some, some type of verbal persecution. But as Christians today, we do have to suffer at times through sickness, through loss of loved ones, family, friends, maybe even the loss of jobs. But as believers, how we act, react, and persevere in those times is of most importance. And this is the lesson of 1 Peter because we have a living hope. We push through these trials and these tribulations while walking in holiness as people of faith and hope because sometimes through the darkest times of our lives is when our light can shine the brightest for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in those times that we glorify God the most. And this is the message of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. We can see in these two verses here that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. God the Father in his grace had chosen them. God the Spirit had sanctified them through the atoning blood of the Son, Jesus Christ. And at the end of verse 1 where it says chosen, the King James and the NIV use the word elect. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. And the reason for bringing that up this morning is because the word elect and, and chosen are one and the same. And so that's what we'll be talking about this morning, those who are elect, who are chosen, which means those of us who are Christians that have been chosen by God. And we're not going to discuss this morning whether or not you believe in the divine doctrine of election. What we'll be talking about is this foreknowledge, what it means, and some of the benefits of the elect. John MacArthur says this about election, and I quote, he says, there are a lot of things we don't have to understand, and you don't have to understand or even believe in the divine doctrine of election, but you must understand the doctrine of divine regeneration and new birth in order to be saved. And let me just say this on the matter of election. Would you really want to serve a God who didn't know what was going to happen next I know I wouldn't because that wouldn't be the God of the Bible would it and if God's omniscient and he is meaning that he's all knowing he knows everything right even before it happened he, know, he knows the past he knows the present and he knows the future he's omnipotent all powerful and he's omnipresent he's present everywhere all the time and I know most of us know all these attributes of God but the reason I want to bring him back to our attention this morning is because this is what makes him the sovereign, holy God that Scripture says that he is. Amen? All throughout the Bible, we have many verses of Scripture that tells us that we're chosen by God even before time began as we know it. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that reads, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. These two verses right here lay out the full spectrum of salvation for us. In other words, they give us salvation all the way from the past to the present and into the future. And this is so clearly taught in Romans 8, 28 through 31 where it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things. If God is for us, who is against us? Now that word foreknew in verse 29 where it says those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son 
That doesn't mean that God looked down before time and started picking and choosing and saying, I think I'll save Shane. I think I'll save Jim or Chuck. But what that means is a predetermined, planned relationship. Just, had he, just as he had with Jeremiah before he was ever born. And we're going to get back to the, this word foreknowledge in just a few minutes. But this is exactly what Paul's saying in 2 Thessalonians. God has from the beginning chose you to salvation. That looks back to the past, right? Folks, this is straight from God's word and it's exactly what it says. And I think we should believe it for what it says. You might hear some say, well, why would God choose us before we were ever even born? You're going to figure out sooner than later that I like quoting a lot of things from different pastors, and I use a lot of scripture. So if you don't get anything else out of my message, you ain't going to be able to walk away and say you didn't get some of God's word. Amen? Amen. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about it. He says that he was glad that God chose him before he got here because if he had waited till he got here, he never would have been chosen. Where it says, through sanctification by the Spirit chosen you to salvation that looks back to the past and sanctification by the spirit looks to the present when we're saved we're sanctified both as to position and practice when we accept jesus christ as our savior we're now in, we're now in christ which is positional sanctification that is the past tense of salvation we also have the practical side of sanctification which which concerns your life through the Spirit of God, we're to grow in grace. Belief of the truth means that as believers, we're going to study the Word of God. And this is the way we grow and develop, by staying in the Word. Our sanctification is not perfected yet, but it is growing into perfection. And we'll go a little bit more into detail on that, uh, the different types of sanctification as well in a few minutes. Then we have the statement Paul makes in Colossians 1.27. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That looks forward to the future, right? So we can see that these two verses give us the complete fullness of salvation. We've been saved, we are being saved, and we will, shall be saved. And it's all a work of God. Amen? Let's look at Acts 13. Verses 46 through 48 for a minute. Acts 13, verse 46 through 48. It says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiated and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as have been appointed unto eternal life believed. Make note of what it says here in verse 48. It says, those who were appointed unto eternal life believed, which means those who were chosen believed. You see, the Jews didn't like the message from Paul and Barnabas because they couldn't stand the thought of salvation being offered to all who would believe, meaning the Jews and the Gentiles. And so he tells them that they were obligated to bring the message to them first, but since they turned away from it and refused to accept it, 
they were turning to the Gentiles. But when the Gentiles hear the message, in verse 48, it tells us, as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. Folks, this is the simple statement of the sovereign election of God, and it should be taken at its face value just as it's read in Scripture. Were they already chosen? Sure they were. They were chosen, but they weren't saved yet. So being elect and being saved are not the same, which means you can be elect and not be saved yet. But listen, if you were chosen and you're one of the elect, you will be saved. As in our text this morning, salvation comes through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God planned salvation, Christ purchased salvation, and then when we repent and believe, the Holy Spirit applies salvation. This means that we're chosen, but we're not set apart unto God yet. And that's where the work of the Holy Spirit comes in. We have many verses of Scripture that tell us we're chosen by God. And so to, not, to not deny that would be actually to deny the Word of God, right? Peter writes this letter of encouragement to the believers who are being mistreated and persecuted for their faith. And he tells us in the first verse that they're scattered through, all throughout the Roman Empire. And the reason for their dispersion is because they're trying to hide from Nero, who is burning Christians at the stake, and he's having their lands taken away from them. And so he tries to encourage them by telling them how special that they are to God. And he starts off by saying that they're elect. And this is often a, a controversial doctrine among Christians. And I think one of the main reasons that, we, that that is because they get hung up at salvation. And all we really need to do to clear that up is to get ourselves completely out of the way. Take me, myself, and I out of it and put it all on God, right? He's the one that chose to save us. The Bible tells us that all we have to do is repent and believe. And if you'll notice, I've already mentioned this word believe several times. And we're going to get to that a, few, a little bit, you know, a few more, in a few more minutes as well because that word is very important when it comes to the elect. In our text, election is given as an encouragement. And then he talks about what happens to those who are elect and how each person of the triune God is involved in their salvation. God the Father elects them. The Son dies for them and sprinkles his blood on them. And then the Holy Spirit sanctifies them to make them holy. You see, as believers, we're special among the people in the world. And if you'll notice, I said in the world because we're in the world, but we're not of this world. Peter also tells us how we can learn how to deal with persecution. When, we, when he was in fear of his life, if you'll remember, he denied Christ three times in the same day. And now he writes a book to encourage people that are suffering and to teach them how to suffer. After his lapse of faith in the book of Acts, we no longer see a man cowering down in fear, but he stands firm in his faith and he speaks boldly and he suffers boldly for Christ in the face of persecution. And so he writes this letter to give spiritual strength to those who are receiving the same attacks that he did, and he tells them that they're different from the world because they're so special to God. And this should encourage us as well, right? Knowing that he first loved us and chose us as his own. Amen? 
Even though the world mocks them and persecutes them, he tells them that they're loved by God to encourage them in their suffering. One of the things that should comfort us, comfort us as believers in this world, especially as we go through trials and suffering, is recognizing that we're elect by God. You see, because we're believers, and the world, the world rejects us as believers. Folks, if we choose not to condone or participate in sin, we're going to be rejected by the world, and we're not being rejected by the world, then we may just have a little bit too much of the world in us, right? Remember, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. John 15, 16, Christ said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Election is one of those doctrines that can tend to get folks' emotions riled up or make them become upset. But as we can see here in our text, this doctrine was a big deal to Christians in that day. And it was such a big deal that it became a common title among the saints. They were the elect. Why did God choose them? You think it may have had to do something with their good deeds or their works? It couldn't have been, right? Because we know that our righteousness or our so-called good deeds or good works are nothing but a bunch of dirty, filthy rags. And we'll hear some say that we're not chosen for salvation, but that we're chosen for service or good works. But folks, isn't that kind of putting the cart before the horse? Serving the Lord with our good works doesn't come till after salvation, right? So it wasn't their works that had anything to do with them being chosen, but it was a work of sovereign grace. Look at what Paul says in Romans 9, 10 through 13. I listen to many different preachers talk about this. Pastor Kevin, John MacArthur, Vody Bauckham, Paul Washington, they're all in agreement about this election of Jacob in this text where it says, and not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Well, what do you know about that? The Bible tells us that it was God's choice. Okay, let's look at the next part. It says, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. In the Jewish society, the oldest was always the one that was chose to receive the blessing and the adherence before these two boys had even seen the light of day or had come into this world or done anything good or bad. God's elective purposes were already at work. The older will serve the younger. Paul backs this up with a quote from Malachi where he said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You know, to some folks, this may sound a little unreasonable or maybe even unfair. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I can't understand why God should say that he hated Esau. And he says to her, Madam, that's not my difficulty. My difficulty is to understand how God could love Jacob. We need to understand this in the terms of God's elective purposes and not human emotions, right? With God, it's always a work of grace, unmerited favor. God chose Jacob not based on anything he'd done. 
Jacob and Esau wasn't even born yet. You know, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who called. God selected the younger brother to receive the blessing. So in the same way election is a mystery to us, it's based on God's sovereign right and not because of anything that we have done. Scripture tells us that God is sovereign and he does what he chooses. Some are elect based on God's choice, not ours. Jesus said in John 15, 16, if you'd belong to the world, it would, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. So you see, folks, Christ chose us out of the world, and because of this, the world hates us. Election is the sovereign right of God. We're no longer part of this world because God chose us out of this world. That should be an encouragement to us as believers. And being that salvation is a total work of God, it should make us want to worship God. Amen? One of the other things that election teaches us is that his ways are higher than our ways, right? And we can see that with Paul's response to election in Romans eleven twenty eight, 28, where he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, which means God's elect, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And just a little further down in verses 33 through 36, it says, Oh, the depth of riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Since we've been chosen by God, it should encourage us to evangelize and spread the good news. But then you'll hear some say, if we're already chosen, why preach the gospel? Well, first of all, we preach the gospel because God's word commands us to do so, right? That's what Jesus told us, told us to do, amen? But it should make us want to spread the good news because we know some will hear and respond. As I mentioned early on, God chose to save us way before it ever took place, so being elect and being saved are not the same thing. All of us before we were saved were one of the elect. And I'll mention this once again because it's very important that we understand it this way. Salvation is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It was God that planned our salvation before the foundation of the world. It was Christ that purchased our salvation on the cross. And then when we believe and repent of our sins, the Holy Spirit applies salvation, which is what Scripture tells us to do, right? We believe and repent of our sins, and, it, and it's God that does the work of the saving. Folks, we just don't out of the blue one day make a decision to accept him as our Savior or invite him into our hearts. We simply believe and repent, and he gives us a new heart. And this is why we spread the good news and preach the gospel, so the elect can hear, believe, and be saved. And since God is sovereign, we should share the gospel. Amen? Election should bring humility to us as believers. Many of us have heard Pastor Kevin say this quite often. God is God, and he does what he wants to do. 
Look at how Paul responded to those who seemed to struggle with the concept of election in Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 21. He said, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the same right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? See, Paul's challenging these believers here about their response to God's election. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And so what he's doing here, he's calling them to humble themselves before God. God is God, and we're not. He's the potter, and we're the clay. He's the creator, and we're the creatures. So this doctrine should create humility in us before God and before others. It's God's elect. We're strangers in this world, and because we're, we're no longer part of this world, we're aliens. This word aliens has the meaning of being a temporary resident. We're only here for a short time. We're just passing through. Our home is now in heaven, which reminds me of a song we used to sing. It says, this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasure's in my hope. It's placed beyond the blue. Many friends and kindred have gone on before, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Folks, we shouldn't feel at home here because this, this is not our home. This is not our true home, is it? We see this said about Abraham in the faith chapter of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 9 through 10 and verse 16, where he says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for a city which foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then in verse 16 he says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Because we're electing strangers in this world and heaven's really our home, we have a different culture, we have a different language, and different expectations for life. God's prepared a better place for us, and this is not our home, folks. And since it's not our home as believers and strangers, we should expect some kind of suffering for being strange in this, on this earth. We're not part of this world, and we will at times be misunderstood and hated. We must continually be looking toward our heavenly home. The writer of Hebrews says Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. In Colossians 3, Paul calls Christians to set their minds on things above and not below. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where's our hearts today? According to this verse, our hearts wherever our treasure is. If it's on the material things of this world that we have, then our hearts and our minds are focused on the wrong things. At times we'll also hear Pastor Kevin ask the question, do we have our things or do our things have us? As Christians, we shouldn't be spending so much time and effort on focusing on temporal things 
of this life, but instead we should be consumed with storing up eternal riches in our heavenly home. Okay, getting back to this thing of foreknowledge. If God is sovereign, and he is, there can be no limitations on him, right? For example, here a while back when I was struggling, kind of struggling with this issue, the Baptist church that I used to go to, I went to for about 20 years before I came here, I didn't ever remember much teaching or preaching on this subject. So just out of curiosity, I called an old friend of mine that I used to go to church with there, and I just asked him, if, I said, do you believe in predestination? And he just come right on out with a quick no answer. And so I asked him, I said, well, do you believe that God beforehand knew right down to the very last split second when, when your physical birth is going to be, when that's going to take place? And he said, yeah, I believe that. And then I asked him, I said, do you think God knows beforehand right down to the very last split second when your physical death's going to take place? He answered yes to that. And so then I asked him, so do you believe that God knows beforehand right down to the very last split second when your spiritual boat's going to be, when you're going to be saved? He said, no. Folks, all I could do to that was just take a deep breath and go, wow. Folks, to me, that is putting limitations, limitations on God and his foreknowledge. If he's omniscient, if he's all-knowing, he knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved before it takes place. And for him to foreknow something, he had to predetermine something, right? The reason I said all that was to say this. The problem that arises when we talk about predestination or election or God's foreknowledge is this. Some people want to ask the question, do you mean to tell me that you believe God predestined some folks to hell? Then I've also heard this, that they'll say, I don't know how someone could believe that a loving, compassionate, caring God could, I don't know how you could believe that he could send someone to hell. Listen, folks, it's not God that sends them to hell. It's their sins that send them there. Amen? It doesn't tell us anywhere in Scripture that he predestines folks to hell. If he could, he could send us all to hell. He's God. And he would be just in doing so, wouldn't he? But he didn't choose to do that. He chose to save some. Who did he choose to save? Well, let's look at our famous verse for a second that a lot of folks want to use that may disagree. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, let's not stop there. Let's go ahead and read verses 17 and 18. It says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved, through him he who believes in him is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god man that word believe should sure have come up a lot didn't it i wonder why sometimes folks want to use this verse and stop where it says whoever or whosoever 
depending on what translation you're re reading, meaning that salvation is extended to the whole world and not just to a few certain people. Folks, listen. Salvation is extended to the whole world, and he's not willing that any should perish. And he, if he's the sovereign God that we say he is, according to this verse, he knows that some will perish. But what's that next verse after whoever? I mentioned that we're going to get back to this word believe again, so here it is. It says, whoever believes. So this is talking about believers, right? Not unbelievers. And this is where a lot of folks get hung up because they want to bring the lost folks into this, the unbelievers. If it says you're, you believe, he says you, if you believe, you're not going to perish. You're going to have eternal life. Because he said he didn't come to judge the world, but he came that the world might be saved through him. He who believes is not judged, but the one who does not believe has been judged already. Has been judged already. That's past tense, right? He's already been judged because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So is salvation only offered to a certain few? No. It's offered to the whole world. But listen, folks, only a few are going to take the narrow gate in a narrow way. Of the few who believe. And let me just tell you why I say that. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7 for a minute. Verses 13 and 14. Matthew 7, 13, 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus speaks of two gates, two ways, and two destinations, and two groups of people. And we're just going to cut to the chase here. The wide gates, the unbelievers, headed for destruction. I don't really think I need to go into detail to you where destruction is, where it ends up, right? And Jesus said that there's a lot of folks that are headed down that path. And he says there's just a few that take the narrow way that leads to life. And folks, this life is speaking of eternal life that represents true salvation by grace through faith. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? That's, that's one of our famous verses in RU. We, we recite it every Friday night. Folks, in order for God to be God, there can be no limitations on him. And he can't be God without foreknowing what's going to happen. If he didn't have foreknowledge, why would we want to pray to him about something that's not going to take place a month from now? We can't limit God's knowledge to fit our theology. The things that God has predetermined are the things that relate to believers, not unbelievers. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So who's God conforming to the image of his Son? Those who are believers, folks. He's not conforming unbelievers. He's conforming believers. And listen, this idea that folks have about foreknowledge is saying that God looks down from eternity past and based on what he foresees in the future, what people will do with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he sees that they'll believe, and then at that point, based on what he foresaw, 
He chooses to save them. Save them. You see, we should have a big problem with that idea, folks. Because if God is all-knowing, if he's omniscient, then he wouldn't have to look into the future to learn anything, right? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? In other words, he's not the least bit surprised when we get saved, folks. He's God. He doesn't sit back in his big God chair in heaven and say, well, it's about time you came around. I wasn't sure if you was ever going to accept me or not. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's no more crazy than someone saying that they don't believe they know God knows when a person's going to get saved. God doesn't have to look into the future to see anyone do anything that he hasn't already foreordained, folks. Foreknowledge doesn't mean foresight because verse 29 of Romans chapter 8 says, those whom he foreknew, not what he foresaw. The word foreknowledge in Scripture means to know beforehand in advance or to choose beforehand. In the Greek language, we get the word prognosko. The pro in front of genosko, meaning beforehand, which means those that God previously chose to love and have a close, intimate relationship with in ways that he doesn't love others. And this type of relationship is kind of like the relationship between a husband and wife, where there's a special bond between them, a very close physical relationship where, where one may even express to the other, you'll never find anyone who loves you the same way that I do. And folks, We'll never find anyone who loves us the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ loves us. And we love him because he first loved us. Amen? Verse 2 of our text gives us another benefit of, of, of election. That's the elect are intimate with God. And this intimacy and this relationship began before creation. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that an awesome thing that, to know that before God ever created anything at all, before he created anything, we were already on his mind. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? Though God's omniscient, he knows all things. This foreknowledge is not referring to God knowing facts, but God knowing people in an intimate, saving relationship. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God had this predetermined plan relationship with him where he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So you see, God knew Jeremiah in a saving relationship and called him to be a prophet to the nations before he was ever born. You see, God's not saying that he knew Jeremiah would accept him and follow him and be a prophet. That's passive, right? God actively set him apart. God knew Jeremiah in an intimate relationship and called him to be a prophet before birth. We also see this foreknowledge used in reference to those who don't know God. Turn to Matthew 7, 22 through 23. Matthew 7, 22 through 23 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name 
and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never what? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. Jesus says to these people who claim to know him, I never knew you. He wasn't talking about having knowledge of them, right? Because God knows everybody. But he was talking about not knowing them in a saving relationship. These people never had a saving relationship with God. One of the things that should comfort us as believers about his election is the fact that God knew us before the creation of the earth, and he knew us in a saving relationship, and he called us, called us to be ones who serve him. And it's not based on anything we've done, but based on his grace. And we say this all the time at our church. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? And this should comfort us in our trials and in our suffering. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to the adoption of as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The elect have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And another reason this should comfort us as believers is that God knows all our failures. He knows all our sins. But yet he chooses to be intimate with us anyway. Okay, back at verse 2 of our text on, on sanctification. In the New Testament, we have four different types of sanctification. Pre-conversion, positional, practical or uh, progressive, and then perfect. Before an unsaved person becomes a child of God, he is elect according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And this would be pre-conversion sanctification. Before the sinner ever repents and believes, the sanctification process has already begun preparing the unbeliever for positional sanctification. So election and foreknowledge is the work of God prior to our sanctification, right? And sanctification would be another benefit of the elect or being chosen. In our text, Peter doesn't explain to us the doctrines of election and foreknowledge, but he's stating the fact that God the Father made a choice before God the Son and God the Holy Spirit acted in behalf of our sanctification. Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Which means the once and for all sacrifice of God's Son purchased the once and for all sanctification for the sinner. And then in verse 14, it tells us that for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So apart, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we could not be set apart unto God, as I mentioned before. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in our sanctification. The moment we receive God's Son, we're said to be in Him. We're sanctified by the blood of Christ, who has received Christ, has been, we've received Christ, we've been sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And this is why we can say with Paul, He who is in Christ is a new creation. At salvation, this is every believer's position. And it's not dependent on how long a person's been saved, how much knowledge 
they have about Scripture or how spiritual they may seem to be. So if you've trusted Christ to save you, then you've been set apart once and for all, set apart from sin unto holiness and righteousness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Set apart as God's possession and for God's purpose. So to put it in simple terms, positional sanctification is the fact and the act of belonging to God. Practical or progressive sanctification is quite a bit different. Where positional sanctification is the complete work of God, practical sanctification involves human responsibility. And this requires a lifetime to complete. As we grow in grace, we're gradually but, be, but steadily becoming more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is a daily process of spiritual renewal in the life of the believer. In Philippians 3, 2, Paul claimed that he'd not reached perfection, but that he pressed on to attain everything Christ desired for him, which is how we attain practical sanctification. We press on. We study to show ourselves approved unto God, accurately handling the word of truth who needs not to be ashamed. It's a continual desire for holiness and to be more like Christ all throughout our lives as believers. Less of me, myself, and I, and more of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. This brings us to our last and final part of the sanctification process, which is glorification. He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as positional sanctification is the total work of God, our perfect sanctification is solely the work of God as well. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect sanctification refers to our final condition in heaven. As John, 1 John 3, 2 says, when the Lord Jesus Christ appears, we, will, we shall see him just as he is and we shall be like him. At this point, we'll not have to battle with sin any longer because we'll completely and finally be set apart from sin, perfected and glorified. What a day that will be, amen? What a privilege. We've talked about what the word no means and that it means a close personal relationship. So my question in closing this morning is, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And not only that, does he know you? In John 10, 14, Jesus speaks of this intimate relationship that exists between himself and his sheep where he says, he knows his own and his own know him. And there's only one way to have this relationship. 
Are you a believer this morning? Romans 10 and 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, it don't say you might be saved. It says you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, confession, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Would you trust him as Savior today? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for this day that you've given to us, Lord. And I thank you, God, for this great opportunity that you've given me this morning to stand before my church family. Lord, I love them with all my heart, Lord. And we love our pastor and his family, Lord. And we, we lift our pastor's wife, Becky, up to you this morning, Lord. And we pray for healing for her, Lord, that that in the days to come, Lord, that you'd heal her back to her health, Lord. Get them back here in, in our church family with us. And we thank you, God, for your sovereignty, Lord, and for your omniscience, Lord, and be in control of all things. We just pray and thank you, Lord, for your word, Father, and for salvation. We pray for this country, Lord, and the leaders of this country, Lord, and we pray for those who may not know you as Lord and Savior this morning, they'll come to know you as before it's everlasting too late. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.